Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Okay. So Jehovah Sabaoth means the Lord of hosts or the Lord of armies. And as I begin to study this, um, the main scripture was in the book of Samuel. And we all know the story about Samuel. Um, in this story, Elkanah, the man's name, had two wives, Hannah and Peninnah. And Peninnah was fertile and she gave her husband many children, but Hannah's womb was shut. And each year when offerings were made at the temple at Shiloh, Peninnah would provoke Hannah by teasing her about not being able to bear children. And so Hannah would cry out in the temple, and one day when Eli the priest found her, um, he thought she was drunk because she was praying so uh, avidly. And when he found her, he asked her what was wrong, and she said, I can't have children. I'm praying to God that if he'll give me a child, I vow that I'll give this son to you and dedicate him to the Lord's simple here in his service. And Eli blessed her and prayed for her. And so Hannah soon had this baby boy, whom she called Samuel. And once Samuel was old enough, Hannah presented him to Eli for service in the temple. And this was the chief temple of Silo or Shiloh. And so Samuel lived with Eli there and um, he lived in the temple and he performed the duties as he learned them. But I wanted to explore this story a little further about how it relates to Jehovah Sabaoth or the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies. Um, as Samuel grew... Jehovah Sabaoth uh, started speaking to him in the night, and he'd call his name. He'd say Samuel, and little Samuel thought it was also Eli in his room, and went to him and asked if he called. And Eli said, no, I didn't call you Samuel, go back to sleep. So God called Samuel a second time, Samuel. And so Samuel ran to Eli's room and asked him again, did you call, Lord? And Eli said, no. And God called Samuel a third time, and when Samuel went to Eli's room, this time the old priest knew it was God who was calling and speaking to him. And you have to remember at this time there were several hundred years before God had spoken to man. And Samuel, as we consider a prophet, uh, um, he was being spoken to by God and it was almost unheard of. Um, so finally Eli realized this and he told Samuel, when the Lord calls you again, say, I'm here, Lord. And then listen to him. And so God indeed did call Samuel again and he told him through a prophecy that the house of Eli would fall and that Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were wicked and doing detestable things in the temple. And so Eli asked him the next day, what did God say? And of course, Samuel told him. And I'm sure Eli's face was ashen and he was probably a little concerned. Um, but I want to skip on to 1 Samuel chapter 4, where it talks about the war with the Philistines. And we could see kind of the, the rest of the story as it pertains to Samuel and in this prophecy. And so the people sent men to Shiloh, the main temple where Eli was, and they brought back the Ark of the Covenant because that's where it was held. It was the chief temple. And they said, the Lord Almighty, the Lord of hosts, the God of all the armies is enthroned between these cherubim. And 
Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are here, and they're going to help carry this ark to the battlefield against the Philistines. And you remember that the Ten Commandments were in the ark, um, the rod or staff that bloomed was in the ark of Aaron's, I think maybe the snake, a uh, bronze snake or serpent was there, even some manna left over. And so the Ark of the Covenant basically symbolized the very presence of God. And wherever the presence of God was is where he would move. And so his presence was in the temple. And it was very real, and you could feel it because the priests had to be careful when they were around the Ark of the Covenant because if they had any sin in their lives, God would strike them dead. In fact, there's in... Uh, in Numbers and also in Leviticus, it talks about the priests having to wear holy garments. Their underwear had to be a special linen. They had bells on their robes so that if the uh, other priests heard them uh, moving around, they knew they were okay. But if they didn't hear bells, they knew God had struck them dead. And they had a rope around their leg and they pulled them out from the presence of God because they had died. And so during this war with the Philistines, we have these two wicked boys, Eli's sons, who were also priests, who were carrying that ark of God. And God's a jealous God. And when God had prophesied this to Samuel, he was telling him, look, this is going to happen, obviously. And you would think Eli would have caught on and said, hey, sons, you need to repent. But that didn't happen. So when the Lord's, uh, when the Ark of the Covenant came into the camp, all of Israel heard such a great shout because everyone saw it and you rarely see it. Maybe never in your lifetime if you were an Israelite or a Jew. And so there was such an uproar that everybody was shouting and praising God in the Hebrew camp. And so the Lord of armies, the Lord of hosts, Jehovah Sabaoth, was right there. And he battled the Philistines. And spiritually he battled them and he terrified them because they heard this great war, roar. And then the glory of God was there in his presence. And so when the Philistines learned the ark of the Lord had come into the camp, they became afraid. And they were saying to themselves, a God is coming to the camp. Oh no, nothing like this has ever happened before. We're doomed. Who's going to deliver us from this mighty God? He's the God that struck the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. And then they started rallying the troops. They started energizing themselves. And they started calling the war cry. And they said, be strong Philistines. Be men. Don't be cowards. Or you'll be subject to the Hebrews. Be men and fight. And you know the story, um, what happened. But let me ask you this question. Do you know that Satan has an army too? So the Philistines fought, and the Israelites, unfortunately, were defeated, and every man had fled to his tent. And the slaughter was so great that Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers that day mm. in that battle. And I believe they were just slaughtering them, slaughtering them right in their tents, you know, because they were so afraid. Because what happened was the ark of God was captured by the enemy. And Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. And so that same day, uh, Benjamite ran from the battle line and went to Shiloh to see Eli. And he had his clothes torn and his head was uh, sprinkled with dust. You know, when they go to mourning, that's what they would do. And when he arrived, there was Eli sitting on his chair by the side of the road watching. And he was watching because his heart feared for the ark of God. Now notice that he wasn't fearing for the lives of his sons. He was more afraid about what happens to that ark of God, the presence of God. And when that man entered the town and told people what happened, the whole town sent up a cry and mourning. 
And Eli heard the outcry and he asked, what's the meaning of, of this uproar? And the man hurried to Eli and Eli was 98 years old. The Bible says he was heavy with flesh, which means he was probably very obese, super obese. And he couldn't see, so he didn't know what this uproar was about. And so the man told Eli, he said, I have just come from the battle line and I fled from it this very day. Eli asked, what happened, son? And this is in verse 17 in Samuel 4. The man who brought the news replied, Israel fled before the Philistines, and the army has suffered heavy losses. Also, your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. You see, the ark of God, of course, is where the presence of the Lord dwelt from the time of Moses to this time at Shiloh. And it's part of why we call the Lord of hosts the Lord of hosts, because he will entertain those in his presence. And so in verse 18, when he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell backward off his chair by the side of the gate because of his flesh. His neck was broken and he died, for he was an old man and he was heavy. He had led Israel for 40 years. And then his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, one of his wicked sons who had just died, was pregnant and near the time of delivery. And when she heard the news that the ark of God had been captured, that her father-in-law had died and her husband was dead, she went into labor and gave birth, but was overcome by her labor pains. And as she was dying, the women attended her, said, don't despair. You've given birth to a son. But she didn't respond or pay attention. She named the boy Ichabod, saying, the glory has departed from Israel because the capture of the ark of God and the death of the father-in-law and husband. And she said, the glory has departed from Israel. So, the Lord of hosts of heaven will always fulfill his purposes even when the hosts of his earthly people fell. God was going to fulfill his prophecy through Eli and his sons Phineas and Hophni regardless of what happened. Most people probably would have thought, well, this battle took place, the Philistines took the ark of God. How is it going to be that you know God can allow this to happen? But it's much like in our lives Regardless of our circumstances, regardless of our finances, regardless of our physical well-being, God is still going to perform something in our lives through us by others. And you know what? He's going to make sure that his purposes are fulfilled even when we fail as earthly people. And God spoke to Samuel and gave him that prophecy. And the glory of the uh, Lord of the armies departed. But Samuel, who was called by God, remained. And he carried on with the duty, and he carried on despite their dereliction of duty, and he carried on with steadfastness despite their failures. So Ichabod, I want to talk about that briefly. The glory of the Lord departed, written over the door of a church post or that temple, was probably the worst thing that can happen. I can recall there's times I remember um, as a kid going to some country churches that in Pentecost, people would say if the Spirit of the Lord left, this church was dead. It wasn't living anymore. And there were times where people might have spoken Ichabod or things like that. But it's the worst thing that can happen to a church to have Ichabod, the glory of the Lord, departed over a doorpost of the church. It's the worst thing that can happen to you at your home. It's the worst thing that can happen to anybody. Um, the Bible says, grieve not the Holy Spirit. It's the only, it's the only sin that is unforgivable. To grieve the Holy Ghost. And so I thought about this with Ichabod and everything that happened. And I, it, it brought me to the story of The Legend of Sleepy Hollow by uh, Washington Irving. 
And you guys remember that, that story, or you probably read it in high school literature or saw the movies in the 90s. I think Johnny Depp was in it. But you remember the story, the legend of Sleepy Hollow up in northern uh, New York. The people and the locals, Washington Irving says, the locals were fascinated by tales, haunted spots, and twilight superstitions. And most of these mysterious occurrences would happen around this town, and it had like this haunting atmosphere. And the most infamous person in the hollow, Washington Irving calls him the commander-in-chief of all the powers of the air. And he said he's the headless horseman. You guys remember now? So he said he's this restless ghost, this Hessian soldier, um, whose head had been shot off by a straight cannonball during the Revolutionary War, who rides forth in the scene of battle in his nightly quest to find his head. And so... This Hessian mercenary, he was hired by the British to fight against the Americans. And he was decapitated by this American cannibal. And the shattered remains of his head were left on the battlefield while his comrades hastily carried his body off the field. And so because he was never connected, I guess, that's why he would go around looking for his head. He was eventually buried in a Dutch cemetery, but every night he would rise as his ghost. And he would furiously seek his lost head and he would hold up a jack-o'-lantern in place of his head that was lit. You guys remember all this? Okay. So Ichabod Crane, the namesake of Ichabod um, that Washington Irving uh, named him, he was this lowly teacher that allowed all this evil to surround him. He was a teacher of the children at the local school, probably the only school. But he was fascinated by all this evil and this witchcraft and the mediums, and he would go to them, and he would, he would go about all these evil things. And remember, this was written in the 1700s, late 1700s, and set during the scene of the Civil or the Revolutionary War in the 1770s. And so he, much like Phineas and Hoffney, was doing all these wicked things and dabbling in this witchcraft or dabbling in this medium or dabbling in this kind of music, or this kind of movie, or this kind of demonic activity, and thought everything was okay, and fascinated by it. And so what happens is, he's out trying to find the Headless Horseman, and the Headless Horseman finds Ichabod, and says, there's no God with you, and he throws his lantern at him, his jack-o'-lantern, and instantly, Ichabod basically turns to just a pile of ashes, a pile of embers. And... The Headless Horseman, of course, in Washington Irving's story is the harbinger of death, um, of fear, and revenge. And so let's get back to Samuel. Um, when the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies, departs, like the Ark of God was captured by the Philistines, evil is going to lurk. Evil is unchecked and evil conquers. You ever seen somebody who you knew didn't have God in them? How hollow their eyes were. How their prayers seemed like they didn't even make it to heaven. How they were so controlled by their addiction that that's all they would think about. I've had some relatives who were addicted to meth and that's just the only thing they will think about. I recall when I was a teacher at the public schools like 20 plus years ago, I was asked to go work with a student at a group home who um, was an older boy. He was 18. And the school district didn't want him in the high school because he had just been charged um, and found guilty of molesting a younger boy. And so I had to work with this young man, and it was tough, but I knew I could tell 
behind this friendly smile and this friendliness of this guy was this evil. And I could sense it and I knew it. And so eventually after trying to teach this guy to learn how to read and, you know, just the basic skills, um, I asked the group home supervisor if we could go out and walk as a reward in the neighborhood. And the supervisor, I remember, said, yes, but keep a close eye on him, please. And I thought, ah, I got this. So here I am, and this guy's probably twice my size. Big, huge dude. And we walked just outside of the neighborhood, maybe one block away from the group home, and he saw a young boy of about 12 or 13. And I kid you not, I grabbed his arm because he was like a rabbit dog on the end of a leash trying to make his way to that boy. He was instantly going to try to get over to that boy. And I had to pull him back and rein him in with all my might and all my strength just to get him back to that group home. And you see, when the glory of the Lord departs, evil will lurk every time. And evil was conquered and evil actually conquered that town of Sleepy Hollow way back in the 1700s. And the glory of the Lord departed at Shiloh in the temple. And you know, it's so ironic that Washington Irving gives the town the name of Sleepy Hollow. It's a lazy, sleepy people with hollowness in their eyes who entertain devils and witches and such. Much like America today. Aren't we more entertained by devilish movies and demonic lifestyles and wicked mediums who conjure up the dead? And most people would rather be entertained by that than being here tonight at Post. Or to go to the house of God. But you know what? When the, when the glory of God departs a place, there's nothing there to seek. And so they don't find anything that's good for their soul. But just like in Samuel's story, the Lord of hosts of heaven, the Lord of heaven's armies will always fulfill his purposes. Even when the host of his earthly people fell. Now think about this. Eli and his sons fell. The presence of God departed. Ichabod was written over the doorpost. And in the legend of Sleepy Hollow, Ichabod, of course, was the name Washington Irving gave to the protagonist, a weak teacher who believed in all kinds of magic and witchcraft. Later on in Samuel's life after he died, he had anointed Saul king first and had, was against the ideal of a kingdom for Israel. And he was right. God was against the ideal of a kingdom or a dynasty for Israel. God said the priests should lead. But the people revolted and said, no, we need a king. We want a king. We have to have a king. So God said, anoint Saul. And when Samuel did, he knew it was wrong. But after Samuel had died, when Saul, when his mind was reprobate and he was doing wicked things as the king, God departed from Saul and he consulted with mediums and he conjured up old Samuel who was already dead and asked him all kinds of questions. And you can see where this is going, where when the glory of God is with you and then it departs because you're doing things you shouldn't, it's a terrible thing. The Bible says it's a terrible thing to fall into the hands of a living God. And so, in the legend of Sleepy Hollow, Washington Irving gave that name to him and that teacher who was weak and believed in all this magic and witchcraft. And during his encounter with evil incarnate, again, The headless horseman is called the commander-in-chief of all the powers of the air, which represented Satan himself. So Satan, he's going to mock God's deity. Jesus is the commander-in-chief in in heaven. Jesus is the commander-in-chief of heaven's armies. And you know what? 
He will one day split the eastern sky and ride a white stallion as the Lord of heaven's armies. And God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit represents that trinity. But you know what? Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet, it represents that evil triumvirate. You see how Satan has to mirror everything that God does? You see how when Satan was in heaven, he was an angel of light. And now that he's cast out of heaven, sometimes he acts like that angel of light and looks like something that might be godly. But when you get too close and you're tempted and you get there, then bam, he's got you. And so what happened with that Ark of the Covenant? The Bible says that there were seraphim and cherubim protecting that ark right there between at the altar. And the archangels would fight for the Lord and the host of heaven's armies. We read about that in the Bible. Several archangels. But in the army of Satan, there's nymphs and witches and demons. And some of those I believe I saw this week. And you see, the Bible says that Satan rules the powers of the air. And so let's look at this scripture in Ephesians 2.2. 2, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. My goodness, Phineas and Hophni were sons of disobedience. The prince of the power of the air was in control of them and control of that Philistine camp. Although the ark of God was there, he had departed Shiloh. And we know that Paul here in this text describes Satan as a prince with power because 1 John 5.19 says that he does have authentic power in the world. It says, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Now, I'm not giving credit to Satan. I'm not glorifying him today. I just want you to be aware of your adversary. I want you to be able to size him up. I want you to be able to look him square in the eye and see what you're fighting. And you see, the power has given by him by God because Satan's power can have power over illnesses. In Luke 13, 16, you remember what it says? It says, and ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years? He bound her. He had power over her. He had power on her sickness. And Jesus said, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day. And even the great apostle Paul, he was sometimes... Conflicted and afflicted by Satan. Because Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12 and 7, So to keep me from becoming conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations that God was showing him, and Paul was a great man of God, he said a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. You don't think he's after you or me? He was after the great apostle Paul. And it's unknown if Paul's thorn was an illness or something. But in some sense, Satan also has power over death. In Hebrews 2 and 14, it says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. It's no clearer. The reason Satan is called a prince rather than a king is that there's only one king, Jesus Christ. That's right. Yes. And 1 Timothy 6.15 says, Which he will display at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the king of kings and lord of lords. 
that Lord of hosts, that Lord of the armies. But you see, Satan's no lord or king, and he's only a prince because of Jesus. And you know, one day, every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Satan even has power over some people. That sons of disobedience that Paul referred to in Ephesians 2, 2. Um, he said in Acts 26 and 18, actually Luke did, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. And those demons that I encountered, they're under the rule of Satan. In Matthew 12 and 24, it says, But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons. Isn't it awkward that the religious people knew who the prince of demons was and could call it out, but they were wrong and they were in error when Jesus did it? And in Matthew 9 and 34, again, But the Pharisees said, He cast out demons by the prince of demons. And Satan does have a kingdom because in Matthew 12, 26, it says the same thing. And then in Revelation 2 and 13, it says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. Satan is called a prince because he's a ruler. And he possesses a power to manifest evil. And he does this in the world by influencing people and by commanding demons. And so I wanted to look at the word the air, the prince and the power of the air. And in Ephesians 2, 2 that it refers to, it's this invisible realm above us, I believe. That's what Paul believes too, where Satan and his de- demons move and exist. And sometimes you have to have spiritual eyes to see And sometimes they may manifest physically, and you can see them with your physical eyes. Sometimes they might manifest audibly, you can hear them. Other times you may just sense something's wrong. Usually when the hairs on the back of your head give you that fight or flight notice, that's usually when something's wrong, right? You can tell. When I get that feeling at the prison, I know something's wrong. And something was wrong with me today because I was fighting this so much. We have to wear stab-proof vests that are really heavy and thick. And the heat was so bad. And in the building where I work, it's not air-conditioned except for my office. And um, it was just really tough. And I was walking through the tunnels that are in air-conditioning. And I just knew my body was weak. I just felt ill. And my legs just kind of buckled under me. And I went, bam, right down to the concrete floor. But I jumped up as quick as I could because we have to wear body alarms if you go prone or you... You go like 45 degrees any direction, an alarm goes off, and the cavalry comes running. So I know I better get up. So I felt like I just did a real quick burpee, you know. They jumped up. And I was like, oh, Lord, this sucks. But then I went, and I just kind of hung on to a rail. And for me to touch a rail in the prison is pretty um, amazing because there's rails all throughout for guys to hold on to. And normally they do their farmer blows on them, you know, on purpose to – you know, so we don't touch them ever, but I had to lean against it, and I just had to stand there for a bit and collect myself. I finally got back to my office, and I still wasn't feeling well. I left a little bit early. I got something to eat, got home, and you know, it was over. It was over. And I knew that I had to speak tonight, and I, I told myself, and I said, God, i got to get well. i got to get better. I can't skip. So 
Paul writes here about this atmosphere, this space, this location where the air is. He says in Ephesians 6, 12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And you know, this evil realm called the air, he may have said heavenly, but that's just an old word meaning our atmosphere, our, you know, over earth that hovers. And it could be an actual locality, but most likely it's just synonymous with the world. Evil is rampaging throughout this world. And so this whole world is Satan's demand and domain. And in Matthew 4, 8 through 9, it says again, the devil took him, Jesus, to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship. If they weren't his to give, how would he have power and dominion over them? God has power and dominion over him and over the world too. But although Satan has this power and authority in our current world system, which exists, and we know his power is limited, we also know that you know God's in control and Jehovah Sabaoth, the Lord of armies is going to be in control. But remember in Job, when Satan went to the very throne of God and said, I want to test this man who seems like he's got everything together. This guy who claims to be so close to you, God, I want to see if I can break him. And he'll deny you. And God said, all right. And the Lord said to Satan, though, behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. And then he tempted and tested Job. You remember Job got word that his whole family uh, was killed. And then as the messenger was arriving, another messenger was there. And then he got word that all of his cattle and sheep were gone. And everything was destroyed. And all, the th- all these things happened. And remember Job suffered with boils all over his body. And all his friends said, you're wrong, Job. It's sin in your life. And Job said, no, I'm still going to praise God. And even his wife got mad at him. And she said, Job, why don't you just curse God and die? And he said, oh, you foolish woman. Though God slay me, yet will I trust him. And in the end, Job found from a whirlwind from God when he appeared to him with a still, small voice. He basically said, I'm still a sovereign God. And you were faithful. And, you know, although Satan has his power and authority, and he did do that to Job, you know, God, God doesn't really reveal all the whys and whens concerning Satan's rule. But he has made it clear that there's only one way to escape this power of Satan's dominion. And we know it's through Jesus Christ. And so in Acts 26 and 18, it says to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So it's Jesus who's the one that conquers Satan. And it's Jesus through us that conquers him. Yes, sir. And the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies, Jehovah Sabaoth, he'll always fulfill his purposes even when his earthly people fell. I fell all the time, every day. Paul even said, I die daily. And we do. We repent, we get up, we start over again. We pick ourselves up. We keep on. And you know, it reminds me that in the Bible, of all the great men and women in the Bible, all the leaders in the Bible, do you know that only 67% finish strong with the Lord? 
The rest of them fell away. The glory departed. And so finally, I'm getting there, guys. Let's look at the rest of the story of Samuel. In, in 1 Samuel chapter 17, we find this lowly shepherd who's the runt of his brother's David. This Philistine giant, Goliath, is harassing the Israelite army. All hope is lost. They had conquered most of Israel. They had taken the Ark of the Covenant. And Saul, the same king we were talking about earlier, he asked Samuel to pray. He said, pray, help me. Help me with this fight against these people, against this giant. But yet Saul was doing everything against God's will during this whole time. But Samuel prayed. And you remember when Samuel prayed, he still asked God to have his obedience. Or to, he, he still said, God, I'm obedient, even though Saul isn't. Let me be there in his stead. And he called, um, he called the sons of Jesse to the king Saul's tent because God said, call him. After he prayed, he said, I want you to anoint the future king because I'm basically through with Saul. And so you see these big strapping young men line up and Saul says, isn't there somebody else? Because he didn't recognize the anointing on any of them. And you know the story. He said, where's your other son? Oh, he's up tending the sheep. He's just, you know, a little guy. He's taking care of those, you know, sheep, and he's a shepherd boy. But Samuel said, bring him. And so David comes in, and his brothers kind of taunt him. What are you doing here? You were supposed to just bring the cheese and meat. You know, why are you here? And he's ruddy. He's a smaller boy. Um, his older brothers, I'm sure, are always beating up on him, doing things to him. But Samuel had prayed to Jehovah Sabaoth. The Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies. And that same God said, this is him. That same God who's commander in chief said, I'm going to use this soldier. And he said, it doesn't matter what he looks like. And so Samuel anoints David, the future king. And then David says, you know what? I can fight that giant out there. And of course, they all are doubtful. Even the king Saul was. And so he said he could fight Goliath. And this evil incarnate out there was lurking and taunting and cursing God in front of all the Philistine army and the Israelites. And you remember the story. Everybody was afraid. And Saul asked him, he says, what have you ever done, David? And King Saul's doubts are totally there. And, and you know, he doesn't understand David, but he questions his abilities. And oftentimes we're questioned. And oftentimes when Satan attacks, he'll question our Weaknesses and our true values and the things in our life that we're not really taking care of. Where were you when your wife needed this? Where were you when this happened? Why didn't you seek me more or seek God more? And, you know, there's that questioning. And people question us as men. And according to our human frailties and sins, we're questioned a lot. But no one can question the Lord of armies, the Lord of hosts. And David said, I killed a bear with my own hand. It was after my sheep. And I killed a lion too. And he said, I was protecting my sheep. And Jesus is our great shepherd. He protects us when evil lurks. But you know what? He didn't say, stand in a corner and hide and let me come and rescue you. You have to sometimes go on the attack. You have to sometimes go on the offensive, which as Christians, we rarely want to do. And you see, David said, I'm ready. Give me a shield. Give me a sword. Give me some armor. And they did. They gave him Saul's sword. Saul's shield. Saul's armor and Saul's helmet, and they were all way too big on him. And here he goes out there clunking like a little boy with the armor that was for the anointed one, the king. But now he is the anointed one. And so he goes out there, and you remember the story. Everyone doubted it. 
And here Goliath roared in contempt. And the dude was like nine feet tall, the Bible said. And it said that his hands were as big as most men's thighs. And he was just humongous. I think he even had six hands or six fingers, I mean. But he was really odd and huge. And so here he is cursing God. He says, I'm going to tear you to pieces, you little boy. Everyone doubted. Then David shouted to him in Samuel 1745. And this is the crux of what I want you to hear tonight. You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a shield. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom thou hast defiled. And David slew the giant with one rock and a sling. He cut his head off and showed it to both armies. And of course, the Israelites won that battle against the Philistines. It rallied the troops. So this headless giant lay on that battlefield and he was conquered. His identity was gone. They couldn't tell who he was, much like the headless horseman. His identity was tied into his head, but it was over here. He couldn't find it. And like Eli, who fell back in his chair and broke his neck, his head that identified him was broken. The ark of God that identifies us, Jesus Christ himself, our identity in that temple of Shiloh was forever gone and the glory of the Lord departed. In Ephesians 1.22 it says, And he, Jesus, put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him, Jesus, as head over all things to the church. And in 1 Corinthians 11.3, But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, And the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. Again, Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. And as long as you put Jesus Christ first in your family, and you put Jesus Christ as the head of the throne of your heart, and you put Jesus Christ as the head of your household, and you put Jesus Christ as the head of your body, and your flesh, and your temptations, and everything else in your life, then your identity can always be in Him. Your identity in Him can never be questioned. When Christ is the head, your very personality exudes Jesus Christ. People say, I was with somebody who knew somebody, and I didn't know that person. And you see, your very actions show Jesus Christ. Your very flesh wants to do good things. And it doesn't want to sin, because you want to be joined with Jesus Christ as the head. And when there's sin in your life, or disobedience, you can't come to that altar. You can't go to that ark of God, because you would be dead in your trespasses and sins. Just like those priests who approached the power and glory of God and had sin in their lives. But when Christ is the head of you and me, then that's what others see. Christ. Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. And guess what? The devil sees Jesus Christ. He doesn't see Charlie Johnson. When he looks at you and me, he should see Christ. He can't touch us. The world sees Jesus Christ. They see us and they see the church. Jesus Christ, the hope of glory, the scripture says. And if others see Jesus Christ in us, through us and with us, then you know what? Battles are going to come. Skirmishes are going to rise against us. All matters of evil will befall us in this old world. And as long as the commander in chief of the power of the heirs controls this world, there's going to be battles. But there is a God who will do battle for us because in 2 Chronicles 20.15 it says, This is what the Lord says, Do not be afraid. Don't be discouraged by this mighty army. For the battle is not yours, but God's. And so whatever you're facing tonight, everything that I face this week, 
All the attacks, the depression, the oppression, whatever you're facing in your family, whether it's a spiritual battle in your mind, whether it's depression or evil attacks, or a fight against sickness or disease, Paul said, let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. All you've got to do is call upon the Lord of armies, the Lord of hosts tonight. And most importantly, be ready to fight. Be like a soldier in the army of God. God didn't call us to be Monday morning quarterbacks. <laughs> he didn't call us just to fold our hands and wait on Him to move. He's called us to battle. He's called us to fight. He's called us to attack the enemy. And what I don't understand about Christians is we'll go hog wild over a sports event. And even sports teams will all study the opponent's film and see what the enemy's doing. We'll study that like it's a sacred thing to try to see what plays they're going to play against us. We size up the enemy in most every situation. But what soldiers always have to do is attack over and over again or they're going to be attacked themselves. They have to be on the firing line. And to be on the firing line means you're right there at the front of the battle, at the front line, Firing your weapon. Attacking. And oftentimes, rather than go on offense against the enemy, we want to go on defense. Oh, Lord, pray for me. Brothers surround me. The enemy's attacking me. That was even me tonight when I asked Dale to pray. I should have stood there and stood my ground and said, I rebuke Satan in the name of Jesus. These attacks are from the enemy. Jesus Christ conquered him over 2,000 years ago on the cross. And you know, in Ephesians chapter 6, a scripture we're all familiar with, and starting with verse 10, this is our clarion call. This is our call to battle. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything to stand, stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all God's people. I want to be alert. I want to be a soldier at the front line, at the firing line, fighting for God. I don't want to retract anymore. I don't want to, I don't want to be that great pretender where I'm really concerned about my family, but am I really, as their protector, ready to go out and fight and be on the firing line for my child and my wife? I've done it before, but sometimes I'm remiss. Sometimes I forget. Sometimes I won't go fight for my brothers like I know I should. When I'm awoke at 3 a.m. to pray, sometimes I go back to bed when I know I should be fighting. I should be there, bearing someone else's armor, helping them, and doing like David did. I'm ready. I'm ready to go. And as Christians, a lot of times we're like that. But I'm here tonight to tell you that we don't have to be. 
I would like all of us to be on the attack for God, all of us to be on attack against the enemy. You're going to see great things happen when you go on the attack, when you go on the offense instead of the defense. Sometimes the only times you can score is on offense. I rarely see a score on defense. And very last thing, this song is definitely older than me, but I remember singing it in church as a boy and it just fascinated me. And I was reminded of it because if you think about it, a lot of the early Christians, they really battled. They battled every day for their existence, their food. They were taunted and teased and so many things happened to them. But this is the, this is, Keep on the firing line, the, the, the song. Some of you guys might know this. It says, keep on the firing line. If you win, my brother, surely you must fight. Keep on the firing line. There are many dangers that we all must faced, face. If we die, still fighting, it's no disgrace. Cowards in the service will not find a place. So keep on the firing line. Oh, you must fight. Be brave against all evil. Never run or even lag behind. If you would win for God in the right, just keep on the firing line. God will only use the soldier he can trust. Keep on the firing line. If you'll wear a crown, then bear the cross you must. Keep on the firing line. (coughs) Excuse me. Life is but to labor for the master, dear. Help to banish evil and to spread. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.